Much of what humans do is representational. That it is, it is an abstract of a complex reality that is presented to consciousness. Uh, it's true of mathematics. It's true of language. It's true of art. On the one hand, it's very important to realize that it is through abstraction and representation that we can do many great things. But it is also very important to realize that in creating language and creating mathematics and creating art, we have delimited and selected from the complex and multifaceted reality that we experience through consciousness. All these things that we do, however great that they are, entail presenting and communicating something less than the totality. It's important to remember in the quantifying of mathematics and all its glorious accomplishments that in quantifying anything or putting it into language, we have also limited it and have something that is not included. And that which is not included, as Emily Dickinson said in that poem, is vastly larger than that which we can communicate. Understanding that, I think, is, is uh, humbling <laughs> and also very important. Jason Schneider is a true modern-day Renaissance man with passions that include photography, motorcycles, poetry, music, and philosophy. A self-admitted, lifelong, like a maniac, Jason is also a camera collector, fine art photographer, writer, and photojournalist. Jason has written three books on camera collecting and an authoritative volume on wood-burning stoves. He is currently writing a book with the working title, Understanding Emily Dickinson, A Reader's Guide to the Enlightened Master. Jason has built a long and prosperous career as a photographic journalist, where he's held numerous prestigious positions. He is perhaps best known as the writer and editor who created the Camera Collector column and rose through the ranks at Modern Photography Magazine to become its editorial director. After leaving Modern, he became the editor-in-chief of Popular Photography, the world's largest imaging magazine, a position he held for over 15 years. Currently, Jason is a contributing writer for the Rangefinder Forum, in addition to Creativity Squared. I met Jason back in 2011, when my social media agency was launching and managing Leica Camera's social media channels. We worked with Leica for over five years, and Jason was instrumental in writing questions and editing interviews for the Leica Camera blog, which we also managed. We've been colleagues and friends ever since. From reciting poems to thinking deeply about consciousness, art, and philosophy, I'm grateful to call Jason a dear friend and excited to share our thought-provoking conversation with you today. In this episode, Jason expands on the articles he's written for Creativity Squared, exploring AI and the question, what is art? You'll also hear Jason's perspective on human consciousness, art as representation, and the limitations of language and math. You won't want to miss why Jason is in awe of Emily Dickinson and to hear a few poems he recites, including one from his late and talented daughter, Heidi. Jason also points out what's wrong with the premise of Descartes' famous statement, I think, therefore I am, and why cell phones are the best cameras ever made. Enjoy. But have you ever thought, what if this is all just a dream? Welcome to Creativity Squared. Discover how creatives are collaborating with artificial intelligence in your inbox, on YouTube, and on your preferred podcast platform. Hi, I'm Helen Todd, your host, and I'm so excited to have you join the weekly conversations I'm having with amazing pioneers in the space. The intention of these conversations is to ignite our collective imagination at the intersection of AI and creativity to envision a world where artists thrive. Jason, welcome to Creativity Squared. It is so great to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I looked it up actually uh, before I logged on. We actually met back in 2011 when we were both working on uh, for Like a Camera, and we brought you in as a writer for the Like a Camera blog. Right. 
So it's been very nice uh, to get to know you over the years. And I wanted to um, just have you introduce yourself because we're going to dive into a lot of like philosophical things today related to art and consciousness and AI. And I wanted um, our listeners from the outset to kind of understand why you are so well equipped uh, to speak to these subjects um, from your love of Emily Dickinson. And so could you uh, do a quick little introduction for us? I, uh, you know, I majored in English literature. I'm not really a philosopher. I took uh, a couple of college courses in philosophy. Um, I was uh, the editor-in-chief of modern photography and popular photography magazines. So in that sense, I'm a journalist uh, and have been. And, um, you know, um, but I've often thought about, you know, deeply about uh, subjects like consciousness and uh, uh, art and creativity, and I, I am a a, um, a fine arts photographer. I generally do my fine art photography in black and white on ancient film cameras. Although I do shoot digital as well, and I uh, I'm one of the few people who you know. Uh, is an old guy, old school, and all the rest of that, who who thinks the cell phone is the greatest camera ever invented. So, you know, I I, uh, um, I connect those two things. I mean, photography is photography. And photography has a lot to do with art and a lot to do with consciousness. And all, all these subjects are related. And that's why um, I have thought abstractly upon this subject of consciousness and language and mathematics and what it really means, that sort of stuff. Oh. And, and you're also working on a book on Emily Dickinson, too. And I know uh, you, you do wonderful analysis of her poems. Uh, so maybe you could share why you love Emily Dickinson so much. Well, I started reading Emily Dickinson when I was about 14 years old. And uh, uh, she's... Um, in my opinion, perhaps the greatest American poet of the 19th century. And she expresses herself with uncommon concision and precision. When I read an Emily Dickinson poem, it absolutely tears me up. She comes across as intellectual and detached sometimes, but like Johann Sebastian Bach, you know, it's all about passion. It's all about emotion. Uh, there's great passion and emotion behind it. And, uh, um, you know, Johann Sebastian Bach, for example, created these um, glorious little Baroque machines. You know, if you listen to Toccata and Fugue in C major you know, or something. Um, but on the other hand, what's, what's behind it is passion and emotion which uh, are the essential elements in all art. Well, have you uh, recite an Emily Dickinson poem a, a little bit later? There, there's one in particular tied to AI that, we're, that we'll get to. Well, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of her stuff that's attached to AI, actually. If you listen to uh, Bach's uh, Cello Sonata Number no. 6, you know, you could say, gee, that was written in the 25th century because it's out there. I mean, it's like, uh, and the same thing is true of Emily Dickinson's poetry. You know, it's it's not only eternal, it's futuristic. I mean, even, right? Uh, she dealt with, with all these these um, modern concepts uh, and in uh, completely digested uh, form. It's, it's astonishing. Since you said that, I'm curious, can you give an example of one of her uh, poems that uh, comes to mind when, when you say that? One of my favorite poems by Emily Dickinson is about paying attention. In, in other words, it's sort of a poem of regret, but now that I've attained this knowledge, I will do better going forward. It's kind of that poem. And, and, and uh, a cloud withdrew from the sky. Superior glory be, but that cloud and its auxiliaries are forever lost to me. Had I but further scanned, had I secured the glow in an hermetic memory, it had availed me now, never to pass the angel with a glance and a bow, till I am firm in heaven is my intention now. And, you know, we go through life and we don't notice, you know, uh, be 
be here now is what that is what that poem is about you know uh you have this human consciousness use it <laughs> you know uh, <laughs> really be open to experiencing the world you know we sort of i mean i think of driving into new york city when i was commuting um from uh, uh rockland county into new york um to go to work in the morning and you have all these drivers driving over the george washington bridge and it's, it's like they're sleepwalking you know and there's new york city this magnificent vista you know and nobody cares and nobody is noticing it and and it happens every day and there it is and you have the gift of human consciousness use it open yourself to experience it will avail you now if you if you take this in it will be of use right avail the basic concept of avail is use you know, it's not just don't be a passive observer <laughs> be there right and and uh so that that's one of my favorite poems by emily dickinson simple you know but but profound Oh, I'm so excited to have you on the show. And for our listeners and viewers, uh, Jason and I talk on the phone often, and I get to hear him recite poetry. Uh, so it's nice to get to share this uh, with with the community here. And uh, in addition to the work that we did with like a camera together, goodness, we worked, uh, we did daily blog posts interviewing photographers uh, for like five and a half years. Uh, right. Jason is uh, currently writing some blog posts for Creativity Squared, uh, which we'll link to in the description uh, and that you can also read. Uh, but we'll go into some of the topics uh, that we dive into. And the first blog post, which kind of continues where we're starting, is uh, what is art exploring humanity's defining passion? And I thought I would just like let you kind of expand and speak to this. Uh, one of the lines uh, that you wrote is, in other words, art is a form of existential and emotional communication. Uh, so can you dive in and tell us what the article was about? What is art is one of those, you know, eternal questions. And you say, really, you're going to talk about what is art? I mean, it's like, uh, what is the meaning of life or something? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a huge topic. But one of the signal and identifying features of human consciousness is the ability to abstract, to take significant details and present them in a symbolic form. Language does that, mathematics does that. All these human endeavors concentrate the consciousness and point it in a, in a specific direction. And people have created art since Homo sapiens trudged along this planet, perhaps 300,000 years ago, when the first Homo sapiens appeared, right? You can take a look at the cave paintings of Lascaux, France, right? I mean, they're magnificent. They're, they're, I mean, some of these things, they're so vibrant and alive. And, and uh, it's almost like the decisive moment, you know, of Henri Cartier-Bresson representing an animal on the walls of a cave. And it's such a very human thing to do. You know, now maybe they were trying to exert power over the animals or something, but they communicated their world to us <laughs> in, in something done 17,000 years ago. You know, you can't determine what their motivation is, their specific motivation at this point in time, but that urge to represent something of one's consciousness is a very human thing. Animals possess certain aspects of human consciousness in prototypical form, but animals don't consistently create art, for example. You know, you could show examples of some animals that do things that appear to be, you know, in mating displays and all things. There are creative aspects to those things uh, and individualistic aspects. But abstract reasoning is, is really humans on this planet anyway. One of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on the show is your name came up on a recent interview with Walter Rizzoa, and he asked me the question, you know, what drives creativity? So we started kind of diving into that. And for him, it's all about the intentionality and choice, which I know you wrote about also in the blog post called All Art is Representation, I think is the title. Right. 
Yeah. So tell us about what you meant by all art is uh, representation and where human choice comes into the, the question of what is art. Representation is simply distilling a simulacrum, a, 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 the essence of one's experience, you know? And uh, as a photographer, specificity is everything. You know? and, and, uh, and that's choice. And so if I, have a, if I have a photograph, usually photographs are square or rectangular. They can be oval and round and stuff, but you know, typically they're they are, uh, squares or rectangles. There's a frame that I placed on my reality, my experience, and, uh, and looked at something that was meaningful to me. Look at this. Rather than that, you're taking a, a, a specific thing out, out of the, the great tumbling reality around you and, and requesting, in, in a sense, that the viewer <laughs> pay attention to this particular thing. It's a representation in, in the larger sense of how you view the world or specific aspects of your experience. I suspect that there are other animals that know that they are going to die. Elephants in particular have uh, burial rituals and all, all sorts of things like that, not a burial, but, but you know, death rituals. And uh, so there, there is some sense uh, that uh, uh, the animals have that, that they are mortal, but only humans have this uh, abiding sense uh, uh, of their own contingency and the fact that they are here now and gone tomorrow. And so they want to leave something of themselves. And it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an urge. You could say it's une essai d'immortalité, you know, an attempt uh, at immortality. And uh, it, it's the residue it's of, of, of your life and consciousness presented, you know, in the visual, uh, visual form or as a Shakespeare play or as a, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bach, uh, uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's uh, it's a uh, uh, it it is a representation of of one's own experience, and it seems to be a drive uh, to do this uh, because humans have always done it. I mean, uh, historically, humans have always created art ever since they could be called human. Uh, you can you, you have jewel jewelry, you know that is, you know, a uh, hundred thousand years old or, or, or thirty thousand years old anyway, uh, right? And uh, it was created by this person. What does it mean, you know, that somebody put all this effort into creating this ornate and and lovely and beautiful object, right? Uh, maybe it was to adorn an upper class person. But there's more to it than that. It, it's it's <laughs> it's a representation of of a, a mode of being and a, and a civilization and a, and a society and an individual and their relationship to that society. So it it's uh, um, it, it's everything. I, I mean, I I take a look at a camera. I mean, I'm, I'm a camera collector. <laughs> <laughs> for better or worse, right? I have a camera. It's a Konica rangefinder camera from 1948. And I look at this thing, and uh, I say to myself, well, you know, it has certain um, primitive aspects to it. It's got an old-fashioned kind of... Um, winding mechanism but basically it's a beautiful object and the fundamental elements of it the rangefinder the lens uh, the way it works are really uh, uh, magnificent and you take a look at this thing and it says made in occupied japan right that country was in a devastating situation in 1948 and they created this brilliant uh, object, uh, you know, however compromised it may have been in what was available at the time, it's 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 not a camera. It's triumph of the human spirit. 
for the Japanese uh, to have created this thing when, when the country was, uh, excuse my expression, on the balls of its ass, all right, in, 19, in 1948, right? Uh, uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, there is art in, in many things that, that humans do, you know. I mean, shaker, shaker furniture was created for strictly utilitarian purposes, but it's fine art. Well, one thing that we've talked about, and I know that you included in one of the blog posts is uh, in terms of like art being representation of our lived experiences, is that anything outside of our mind that we create in in essence is art or representation because we just absorb everything through our senses. So any expression is just our representation of our reality, more or less. Um, Did I capture that sentiment right? Well, you capture the sense of it. The thing is that uh, representations and abstractions uh, are uh, essential elements in in the human experience. Uh, the uh, we had a math teacher. It was math one hundred and one at NYU, and he was a real character, Professor Jacobson. He was an old fashioned math teacher. The kind of guy who can take his arm and go whoop and draw a perfect circle just with a sweep of his uh, on, on, on the blackboard. Right? And um, so we sat there and it was math 101 and you were expecting, you know, a little advanced algebra, maybe introduction to calculus or something. Right. And he drew something on the blackboard. And what he drew was a gorgeous three-quarter perspective line drawing of an elephant. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, what is that? <laughs> and people said, well, it's an elephant. No. Well, it's a drawing of an elephant. No. Well, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's calcium carbonate on graphite. No. Uh, uh, and we kept on saying, so finally we said, okay, we give up. What is it? And he said, it's a teacup. And we said, what? (laughs) How can you say that? Because I define it as a teacup. Mathematics, mathematics is the assigning of value to abstract symbols for the purpose of calculation or other things it's in other words we take the complex reality and we simplify it by quantifying it and that's the the essential nature of mathematics all those numbers that you see before you which some people call arabic numbers but really originated in india (laughs) right uh uh, they're they're actually hindu numbers if you want to put it that way um uh those are are don't have People uh, think of one or two as, gee, that's real. It's one or two. No, it's an abstraction. It, it, it stands for something that you want to, that, that will benefit from the ability to simplify and calculate, right? So, uh, uh, so even though mathematics cannot possibly capture all the subtlety of, of uh, perceived reality, it takes a specific element and represents it in, in, in a certain way that it can be used for calculation. And all, uh, so, uh, God bless science, you know, and, and mathematics, but it's, it's all based on this, this um, fundamental symbol-making or, or representation uh, representational characteristic that is the, is one of the essential elements in human consciousness. Language is the same way, right? Uh, uh, Voldar, the ancient caveman, right, is trying to warn his buddy, uh, watch out for the saber-toothed tiger. And so he says, Joe, there's a saber-toothed tiger behind you, right? That is a, an abstract of the reality 
it conveying the essential elements necessary to preserve Joe's life, <laughs> right? Uh, and that's what language does. It, it takes complex reality. It, it lets you say, it, you can't say everything all at once, otherwise you will be saying nothing. So, it, so what language does is allows us to say something about something rather than uh, uh, encompassing the whole thing. But in so doing, it simplifies it and abstracts it, right? That's the essence of language. And the poem that I was talking about by Emily Dickinson, it requires some explanation because, you know, usually what you do with a poem is you like to have it flow over you. you know, the, the, the way to appreciate a poem is read it aloud. <laughs> Let it flow over you. Don't try to analyze it. Just listen to it. Listen to the music. Poetry is the music of language. So listen to it, right? And uh, um, uh, that's the first thing you do. But um, uh, eventually you want to say, well, what the heck is Emily talking about? Right. And and uh, so um, uh, this poem is a very simple one line poem and it's utterly profound. And it's uh, uh, um, Emily Dickinson, the master of concision and precision in language. This is a poem about that is ironically and paradoxically about the inherent limitations of language. Right. So she says, she uses synecdoche, which is where you have uh, one element stand for a larger whole. For example, she talks about the lip. She's not talking about the physical lip. She's talking about the faculty of language and speech, right? And uh, um, uh, she very cleverly says mortal and divine. And while she's using the term divine, not in, you know, the, the divine principle or something, she is using divine in, uh, in the sense of divination, to suss out something, right? Uh, uh, so she says, could, it's conditional, mortal lip divine, the undeveloped freight in a delivered syllable would crumble with the weight. So the speech is taking this thing like a like a semi tractor trailer and conveying it to to the recipient. Could mortal lip divine the undeveloped freight of a delivered syllable? So freight and delivery, right? Um, uh, so what she is saying is if the faculty of human speech, if, if speakers could understand that what cannot be communicated in speech or even an element of speech, like a syllable, right, uh, is so vastly greater than what can be communicated. So uh, 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 she, she is, <laughs> paradoxically, she is communicating something that, uh, um, that stands for the limitations of language and poetry and everything else. Because the vastness of consciousness and experience can only be distilled. And what is left out is enormous. <laughs> right? Thank you so much for sharing that. And one reason why I just love our conversations about this is specifically in applying that or thinking about that related to AI is how these, um, at least specifically generative AI models, but how these machines are trained is based on math and based on language. And what you just said, the limits of language uh, gives the limitations to these machines to really capture the full human experience too, which I find very fascinating. Well, uh, a lot of our experience is successfully enshrined in language. In other words, just because it can communicate everything doesn't mean that what it can communicate isn't very great or very important. And, and that's why an AI program that's properly, 
properly trained on the right, um, on scraping the right sort of uh, uh, verbal material can produce something extraordinary. My, my dear friend, Lisa Ewart, uh, and I created um, some really outstanding images by uh, prompting an AI system, which happens to be mid-journey, uh, to, uh, to produce a, uh, um, <clears throat> an ancient or an old fashioned image in a certain style of a certain kind of classical old fashioned subject. And what it turned out was, it was incredible. And, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's, it stood up. I mean, you, you could you'd say, wow, that's a really great photograph. But of course, it's not a photograph. <laughs> it, it, is, it is a representation of a verbal command um, that is based on analyzing the data in, in the computers, in the AI data set, right? And uh, it's amazing what can be achieved. And uh, she also... Um, um, wanted to write a story about something, um, uh, a guy with a lousy sense of humor, but he was the boss. And so when he told jokes, everybody left. And he assumed that he was this great comedian. And he set up this comedy club. And uh, um, the, the audience was listening to the stuff. And he, he was delivering these terrible jokes because he was really a rotten comedian, right? And, uh, uh, and, and everyone was stone silent until one person started laughing. And then everybody started laughing because the joke was... Uh, uh, how uh, how ridiculously bad his his humor was, right? And so you, you could laugh at the ineptitude of it all, right? And and so uh, um, um, that that's but but the AI wrote this little fairy tale type thing. It was very sophisticated. It was it was it had this sort of artless quality to it. Um, of, of a fairy tale, and yet uh, some of the observations uh, about this person were very astute and sophisticated. And this is an AI product being turned out on a command. So you know the upside potential for this is uh, is uh, is amazing. But on the other hand, uh, you know the um, the writers' strike and the actors' strike uh, 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 right now. Uh, are illustrative of the fact that um, um, it can also be used to supplant, uh, you know, human, uh, uh, you know, to take jobs away from people. I mean, literally, uh, uh, you know, uh, if, a if AI is good enough uh, to, to, to write a script, <laughs> you know, uh, what, so what's the writer going to do, right? Uh well, in, in one of you, well, there's so many can of worms and uh, paths we can go down. In in one of your articles, um, you put forth the thesis that as long as there's any type of human consciousness or choice in the selection, or even I think uh, in that one article, even prompting to create images is enough to call it art because a human touch goes into uh, the prompt itself. Well, the answer the answer is that. Uh... The AI images that Lisa and I created using a verbal prompt, uh, I would have made a big poster size enlargement and put it on display. It was that good, right? And uh, I think that part of the uh, um, quality of, of that presentation uh, was, uh, was the prompt. And when I took a look at the that the little uh, fairy tale created for Lisa with her verbal prompt, I would take a look at that and say, "Well, you know, that's pretty good, but I think I can polish it and make it even better." And uh, I think if I were to publish that, I would take what AI spit out, and then I would add the human element and and uh, bring it up to a higher level. Okay, so so uh, it, it, it AI can be part of the process of creating art. There's no doubt about it, and the ownership is still by the artist, not by the AI system.
And could you share the the thought experiment uh, that you wrote about in terms of the security camera? Because I thought that was like a an interesting thought experiment of uh, the human touch uh, being part of art and choice. Well, you can set up uh, uh, many banks set up uh, security cameras in areas where there's an ATM or something like this, uh, and uh, and so um, and of course. Um, they generally uh, um, destroy the the results of their surveillance unless something happens. You know, unless somebody tries to break the AI, the uh, the what do you call it, the uh, ATM machine, or or uh, or something, right? Or, or tries to rob the bank, <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, and but on the other hand. Um, Somebody who uh, who is in charge of that imagery captured by an automatic camera. Somebody set up the automatic camera, so the angle of view uh, that it, that it subtends, right, and uh, the location uh, and the time frame and the lighting and everything else are all decision points, uh, and and then. Uh, some uh, poor SOB has to go through all this footage of, of nothing in particular to find a decisive moment. And my, uh, I was saying, well, what if uh, somebody standing by the ATM, uh, uh, you know, a, a husband and wife are having an argument, and the uh, 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 and the wife took a hundred dollar bill and and and. Uh, uh, smashed into the face of her husband with a hundred dollar bill. <laughs> that would be an interesting photograph. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so uh, uh, if, if the, the, the person in charge of reviewing the footage selected that image, uh, um, that's an active selectivity. You have this automatic thing and it's spitting out this thing. Well, first of all, you've set up parameters. So it's not simply random. There, there is a human element in setting up the parameters of the surveillance system. Then there is the choice of which frame to to uh, to exhibit, you know, uh, as a sort of madcap funny image, uh, and and uh, of of you know, of of a wife smashing her husband in the face with a hundred dollar bill. Uh, yeah, so so uh, selectivity is uh, one of the essential elements uh, of art. And certainly as a photographer, uh, selectivity is, is everything, right? Um, I like to say, I like to shoot fine art portraits and uh, in black and white on ancient, mostly medium format film cameras. And what I like to say is the subject is everything. I'm only the photographer. I love that. Well, and it's interesting because the uh, this is being debated in the courts right now, where prompts can't be copyright, but the curation and the order of images generated generative AI models can be copyright. So it, it's a you know it's an interesting uh, debate happening in courts right now too. Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking to myself when I took a look at this magnificent image of a a coal district in what looks like a 1920s or early 1930s photograph and the composition was really lovely and there were people in it and uh this was this totally ai generated thing we use mid-journey now if i were to publish that picture or exhibit it in a gallery i would say jason schneider and lisa ewart uh with mid-journey okay i would credit the ai system as part of the uh, process, right? Um, the question is, um, do I own that image? <laughs> could I? Could I? Uh, uh, could I sell that print that I made, right? Uh, as my work and sign it? That's an interesting. Uh, that's a legal question. That's that's not really a philosophical question. Well, and and one thing that you wrote in one of the articles, just uh, I think that was the uh, will. AI kill photography or, uh, oh, you wrote an article called 
AI and the future of photography, the ultimate tool or the weapon of its mass destruction. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Provocative of a title. But in it, right. I mean, you, you kind of talk about the history, like when photography was invented, a lot of people thought it was like the end of painting and it was very controversial. And then when Kodak came out, but it really, um, photography has always kind of democratized um, image making to a certain extent. Well, uh, the great contribution of George Eastman was that he was a marketing genius and he realized that photography at the time in 1888 was uh, you know sort of an arcane practice by people in smelly dark rooms with uh, toxic chemicals especially the daguerreotype process which involved mercury and uh you know and so uh, um uh, he felt that photography was a mass market phenomenon that everyone should be able to take pictures. And of course he would be happy to sell them a camera, right? And film, uh, and, and film of course was the razor blade, uh, of, uh, of Eastman Kodak's marketing strategy. You know, he could, he could afford to sell the camera, uh, at a break even. And, and, uh, w with the idea that people would be using film, uh, in it. And uh, Eastman Kodak made its fortune on on film more than anything else, right? But that that's entirely true. I mean, photography um, uh, in the late nineteenth century, there were artists, uh, uh, painters in particular, who felt that uh, it would spell the death of painting. And uh, what it did, to a certain extent is uh, transformed representational painting uh, into um, much more um, emotional, personal, abstract kind of, of art. You know, you talk about Van Gogh or Cezanne or, or something like this. And it was, and, and in other words, uh, uh, it, it made painting into something else uh, and not just representation. You know, you got to admire the people, you know, like Caravaggio and Titian, and you know, these great artists who who um, did the most gorgeous uh, representational art. Uh, um, but uh, um, um, uh, so, photography. Uh, uh, all these artists were afraid that that the photography was going to take over. Any fool can work work out with, walk out with a camera and and uh, achieve proper perspective and three dimensionality and everything else without having to uh, uh, you know uh, understand perspective or anything. It was all automatically done for them, and uh, it's going to destroy art, and uh, we're going to be out of a job. Being out of a job, I think, is is one of the, <laughs> one of the primary uh, um, complaints of people with any new technology. There are people in the uh, UAW, United Auto Workers, right, who are afraid of electric cars that they're going to uh, they're going to take over and we're going to lose jobs. They're going to require a few fewer people to manufacture them. Uh, maybe it's all going to go to China. Booga booga. Right. And so uh, um, uh, a lot of a lot of um, the complaints about new technology in general are um, uh, about automation, about AI, uh, uh, about electric cars, about all these things. Um, uh, people are afraid that changing the paradigm is going to render them irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you kind of spoke to it that what the point and shoot camera did was really democratize photography and more people just were, you know, was able to make more photographs. And the same thing with, you know, I would say the iPhone camera uh, was very similar in just the explosion of now everyone's a photographer with, uh, with whatever phone that they have in their pocket. The iPhone camera uh, is a marvel. And uh, um, I am all for the iPhone camera. Uh, I mean, I was in a situation. Uh, I, I know there are some dear friends of mine uh, where the husband is uh, slowly dying of cancer. And it's a very sad thing. He has two young children. And so I'm sorry, three young children. And uh, one is a teenager, but the other is a or younger and uh you know it's a it's a personal tragedy 
And uh, I saw I saw him with his wife in this place, and they they both were joyous, and they were together. And you know, you could see that he was you know suffering, but but uh, they managed to transcend it, and they were joyful. And I didn't have my film camera with me, so I took out my cell phone and took this picture. Right. Uh, I have an iPhone 14 plus and I took I took this picture and it's 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 a perfectly wonderful picture and and uh, they made a uh, I sent it to them and they made a big copy of it and uh, and are displaying it you know in their home and uh, uh, so uh, uh, one of the great rules of photography is the best camera is the one you have with you and that and the cell phone certainly answers that uh, uh, that, that meets those criteria. So, uh, you know, I'm all for the cell phone camera. So I, I know I take a uh, bazillion <laughs> photos with, with my iPhone and should probably get out my Leica and shoot more with it. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I have, I think over a hundred thousand photos on the one uh, that I carry with me all the time. And the interesting thing though, is that the process of photography, you know, the, cl the classic statement is, oh, it's not the camera. It's the person behind the camera that makes the picture. Well, that's a truism, you know, uh, 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 and you can't argue with it insofar as, as far as it goes. But the, the experience of shooting a picture uh, is quite different if you're using an 8x10 view camera, a 2 and a quarter single lens reflex, or an iPhone or a point-and-shoot 35-millimeter camera. The, 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 the human interface between the camera and, and, uh, um, and the photographer and the camera and the subject is different. And the difference is visible in the type of photographs that are produced. So the camera, uh, although the photographer is clearly the most important element in the equation, the camera is not irrelevant, and it does shape the result that you get. If I shoot pictures with a Roly Flex, they look qualitatively different from ones I shot with an iPhone. Well, I think another interesting um, topic related to cameras, like one almost all art involves tools. And when we like talk about AI being another tool, uh, but specifically within the Leica camera community, which, you know, you and I are both well deep into, uh, a lot of Leica photographers really talk about the soul of the camera and assign the technology having a soul to it, which I always find like really interesting when, when I hear that uh, from Leica photographers. Well, it, put it this way, different cameras have different characteristics. You ask yourself the question, do they affect the final results? And as I would say, they do. Uh, whether that means that uh, the, the Leica has a soul any more than a Canon, <laughs> I'm not sure, you know. But uh, um, I, think, I think cameras, um, uh, I, I think soul is a little bit grandiloquent. You know, to assign to to a piece of equipment, but th they do have uh, distinctive characteristics that 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 definitely shape the um, the kind of output, uh, uh, artistic output, if you want to call it that 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 is produced. So that that uh, um, it's it's a different experience shooting with a Leica is a different experience than shooting with a with a Nikon uh, uh, single lens reflex or, or, or a uh, Sony mirrorless camera. It's, it's, a different, it's a different experience. That's why, even though the Leica uh, M3 was invented in, in 19, it was introduced in 1954, uh, there are still digital versions of what is essentially an M3. <laughs> Right, uh, that's that still exists. Whereas the um, the possibilities uh, of um, um, of a mirrorless camera or a single lens reflex might be greater than that of a rangefinder camera in a certain way. Uh, its distinctive characteristics uh, 
are appreciated by photographers because they instinctively know that it affects their approach to the subject and it affects the way they articulate their vision. It's a tool through which you articulate your vision. And so its characteristics are not irrelevant, even though it is the consciousness of the photographer behind the camera that is the key element. I know we're getting a little bit close to uh, time for the interview, uh, but I thought that we might um, tease one of the blog posts or articles that you're working on now about uh, consciousness and what Descartes said about, I think, therefore I am. So do you want to share a little bit more about what you're thinking about (laughs) and and working on for for an upcoming article? Well, uh, uh, the thing about Descartes is that he was trying to create a situation where he was a disembodied consciousness, uh, uh, separated from mere physical, um, you know, realities uh, and exigencies. So uh, um, he closeted himself in a in a in a in a room and uh, thought about thinking and thought about. Uh, what what is this consciousness uh, that I am, uh, and 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 so he came up uh, with this thing cogito ergo sum in Latin, which is I think therefore I am, uh, uh, much more elegant than Latin, um, and uh, and 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 uh, uh, the problem is that his premise was faulty. He was not a disembodied consciousness. He was supported by people who took away his waste and brought him food and water and uh, saw to it that he could live in that space. And so he was, uh, in the immortal words of W.B. Yeats, William Butler Yeats, he was fastened to a dying animal, as we all are fastened to a dying animal. It's a, it's a, a kind of grisly image, and it's also incorrect because the body is not a mere body, okay? The body is, is, is inextricably involved with, with uh, uh, the soul, if you want to put it that way, which is to say the human consciousness and the human experience. So the notion that uh, there's this thing in your head and, and in your brain and, and it's all your thoughts and your feelings and everything else, and then there's this body that sort of supports all this, well, you know, it's nonsense. They're inextricably uh, uh, a single entity. It may be useful uh, uh, for a philosophical discussion to distinguish between the body and the soul, uh, neither of which is very well defined, I might add. Uh, but uh, um, uh, it, it doesn't a- a- actually uh, re- reflect reflect the reality of the situation. But to get back to what what you were, what you were talking about, um, the um, um, th- uh, refresh my uh, topic here. So, so you you you. Well, one of the reasons why uh, Jason just pitched this t- idea to me the other day, and you know, one of the things I find interesting with the onset of um, generative AI capturing everyone's imagination this year is that it lends itself to all these existential questions of what does it mean to be human. So all these questions about consciousness and uh, and these these philosophy questions come up. So that's why I was like excited f- to hear your thoughts on it. What I said was the problem with Descartes' formulation is the fact that it is kind of verbal sleight of hand. It is, in fact, self-referential. In other words, the only one who could determine whether uh, I am is me because I think. Well, one of the things that you wrote about in one of your articles, too, just about what is art, is that to a certain extent, a social element to it as well in terms of um, other people helping designate that this is art. Um, and in the same way, you know, one thing that I don't like about Descartes' statement is it's so individualistic versus more of the, uh, one of my favorite quotes by Einstein is uh, actually a letter of condolence where he's like, we need to expand our limitations to encompass like the whole of consciousness. And I think uh, Descartes' statement from my uh, perspective is too too individualistic in that sense. I sort of had a, a nasty send up of that, and my my own my own was uh, uh, I die, therefore I mu- I must have been, 
uh, right? In other words, my existence is uh, is certified by those who remain uh, after my demise. Uh, and I think that uh, you know, although it's it was done in a puckish sense of humor, uh, um, it's it's. Uh, uh, I think I think it's true that uh, our existence. Uh, we are not the ones who af- who affirm uh, uh, our existence in, in a uh, in an existential way. I mean, I uh, maybe we do, but there's a lot more to it than that. And and namely that we are social beings, and 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 our existence is is created and shaped and affirmed by others and by the society in which we operate. So Jason, if you want our listeners and viewers to remember one thing from our conversation about AI, art, consciousness, or Emily Dickinson, or anything we talked about, uh, what's what's the one thing that you'd like them to remember and walk away with? Well, I think that much of what humans do is representational, that it is, it is an abstract of a complex reality that is presented to consciousness. Uh, it's true of mathematics, it's true of language, it's true of art. On the one hand, it's very important to realize that it is through abstraction and representation that we can do many great things. But it is also very important to realize that in creating language and creating mathematics and creating art, we have delimited and selected from the complex and multifaceted reality that we experience through consciousness. All these things that we do, however great that they are, entail presenting and communicating something less than the totality. It's important to remember in the quantifying of mathematics and all its glorious accomplishments that in quantifying anything or putting it into language, we have also limited it and have something that is not included. And that which is not included, as Emily Dickinson said in that poem, is vastly larger than that which we can communicate. Understanding that, I think, is is, uh, humbling and also very important. That's beautiful and such a great uh, note to end on and have everyone reflect on presence and just the beauty of the complexity of the reality that we experience. Uh, So thank you for sharing that. And and before we sign off, I also am holding a book that was just listening on the audio portion with poems from your daughter called I Am Here But I Am Not. So I thought I'd give you the opportunity to share with our readers and viewers uh, this book and the beautiful work of your of your daughter. Well, Heidi, of course, died tragically at age 34 of, of cancer. And uh, she was a uh, an intuitive and... Uh, poet who started composing poetry when she was 11 years old and uh, uh, created uh, an amazing body of work. It's, it's not as large as it could be, but it's, it's significant. And uh, I compiled it into a book, more or less told her story, and uh, just let her, you know, I mean, just present her, her, her work. And... Um, um, it's um, it's it's an amazing book, and uh, she was uh, she was an amazing person, and um, um, so uh, I mean uh, it's a tribute to her, and uh, and and uh, I, I was very glad I was able to get it out there, you know. So, is there a poem that you would like to share uh, that Heidi wrote? Well. This is sort of the title poem. That's where I, I derived the title of, of the book from something that she, she wrote on an envelope two months before she died. So it's called Poem on an Envelope. I am here, but I am not. My heart tried letting go of its grievances one by one, like letting go of balloons flying higher until they disappear. May the space which once I occupied by a sweet one be filled with the things dearest to me, 
forsythia, gingerbread cookies, and absolute wonder. Each thing felt in my small body as infinite as anything could be. Cloudless skies, dusk, the exult smell of the forest. Lay me down to that. I have chills. Thank you for sharing that, Jason. You're welcome. And I'll be sure to uh, put the link to the book uh, in the description and the dedicated blog post. So anyone who would um, like to see all the poems and support you where they, uh, where they can find it. Thank you so much, Jason. I'm so glad for, um, it was actually uh, Christian Earhart that originally uh, he was the uh, head of marketing for Like a Camera USA that brought me in. And I'm so glad he did because it's opened up this whole world of meeting amazing people through Like a Camera. And you are you are certainly one of them. And I'm so glad that working together has turned into this friendship uh, and to today's conversation and all the ones that Chat. we will have. Thanks so much for the compliment, and I am honored to be your friend. Likewise. Jason, it's been an absolute pleasure, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for spending some time with us today. We're just getting started and would love your support. Subscribe to Creativity Squared on your preferred podcast platform and leave a review. It really helps. And I'd love to hear your feedback. What topics are you thinking about and want to dive into more? I invite you to visit creativitysquared.com to let me know. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter so you can easily stay on top of all the latest news at the intersection of AI and creativity. Because it's so important to support artists, 10% of all revenue Creativity Squared generates will go to ArtsWave, a nationally recognized nonprofit that supports over 100 arts organizations. Become a premium newsletter subscriber or leave a tip on the website to support this project and ArtsWave. And premium newsletter subscribers will receive NFTs of episode cover art and more extras to say thank you for helping bring my dream to life. And a big, big thank you to everyone who's offered their time, energy, and encouragement and support so far. I really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. This show is produced and made possible by the team at Play Audio Agency. Until next week, keep creating.